Elena is going to come and she's going to read the book of Jude for us. And um, let's stand together as she reads. So Jude, beginning at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord, rebuke, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning, unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion." These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, re you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Two others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of the glory, of his glory with great joy. 
to the only God our Savior, through Lord through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for <clears throat> the way in which, Lord, you are um, so descriptive, Lord, in this book to help us understand what we are up against and, Lord, what you are counseling us to. Lord, would you allow our time together this morning to um, to alert us, to comfort us, to, to guide us, and, Lord, to push us to contend for the faith in a way, Lord, that would please you and would um, promote a clear and crisp gospel that sees you as Lord and Savior. Um, Lord, allow me as your messenger to be your mouthpiece this morning and allow your people to be humble and teachable. And, uh, Lord, would you be glorified in all that is done. We ask in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, I'm sure this week um, all of you heard about um, the passing of Nelson Mandela. It's all over the news. Um, a lot of people were talking about it. A lot, of, a lot of people were, you know, memorializing him, saying nice things about him. <clears throat> and quite honestly, I was one of those people that was very conflicted in all of that. <clears throat> and the reason I was conflicted in all that is because although ultimately he has been a picture of you know, peace and someone who led uh, the, the, the movement away from apartheid, and certainly I was for that, um, he was also a man that was a terrorist, um, a known terrorist, and used terrorist tactics and had people killed and ended up going to jail because of that. And years later, when he came out of jail, he was hailed as the next leader, so to speak. Within four years, he was the leader of uh, the South American country, or South African country. And, and so it, we, we come to a place where we're asking ourselves some questions. Do we remember Mandela as a terrorist responsible for the deaths of many or for his leadership in bringing about a measure of stability in South Africa? Those are tough questions. And actually for years, uh, in American Christian culture, having been someone that's been born in Israel, I have to remind people in the church here in America who have this nostalgia about Israel that the beginning of modern Israel was a terrorist movement where machine guns and bombs and a hotel was blown up and 90-something people died and it was a hotel filled with dignitaries. And the British ended up abandoning their post there and turning it over to those terrorists, so to speak. And so the beginning of Israel was a terrorist movement. And so we, we need to be mindful that we don't always talk about the whole picture of things. And it's hard sometimes to come to some appropriate, balanced conclusions. They are tough questions which are not easy to answer. And so, the, again, the question would be, as it relates to South Africa or even to Israel, do the ends of national stability justify acts of terror? That's a really important question for our country, actually, at this point in time, and for the world. What we find when we open up the Word of God is that the Scriptures are brutally honest about man and his condition. Scripture is not going to selectively remember only what it wants. And as Christians, we need to be mindful that we are balanced in remembering 
the whole package of what is true. We are sinners. We are tainted with sin throughout. That is our condition. But God in His mercy and grace has provided a way that our sin can be paid for. And so He sent His Son to the cross and died on the cross and in that death paid for our sin and in being that sacrifice is the justification or the righteousness that we need. It's an alien righteousness that is put on us so that when the Father looks down, He looks through His Son, Jesus Christ, on us. We need that. And Scripture is very brutally honest about the fact that we're sinners who have been saved from our sin. Enemies who've received the grace of God. And friends, that balance is so important because that balance is what we see in Scripture. It doesn't hide the ugliness of sin. It doesn't hide the ugliness of a sinful past but it provides the solution of a gracious transformation because of Christ. So all of us in here who know Christ as our Lord and Savior can say, we had a past life. But by God's grace, we have new life. And we need to focus on the new life, but we focus on the new life remembering, however, the great transformation that took us from the old life to the new life. Now, something that is wonderful about the text that we're in here today is that there is this brutal honesty that Jude brings us. God brings us through the pen of Jude. He is concerned about the people in the churches who are under this ungodly teaching, this false teaching, and it is affecting the churches. And he writes this letter quickly. It wasn't his first intention to write about this, but he he felt an urgency to do it. And he calls them to contend for the faith, to use their strength to to stand firm in what they know to be true and to defend it and fight for it. And he calls these false teachers and identifies two things, that they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, they're saying immorality is okay. That the, the gospel, you can have Jesus and immorality. And also they were saying, you know what, Jesus is not the Lord that we must submit ourselves to. So they were undermining those two incredibly important principles of the gospel and of the nature of Christ. And so Jude then begins by preaching a sermon, pulling out of his, his resources one sermon. That's what we looked at last week when we looked at Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah and um, what was the other one? Uh, the angels, that's right, thank you. All right, it's there somewhere in the text, right? And, he, and he, builds, he builds his argument and says basically this, God is holy and he is still in the business of bringing judgment to those who reject him or who oppose him. That's what we looked at last time we were in Jude. And friends, we must embrace that truth as a reality. And he leaned on those examples and and unfolded his application to the church. And today, however, we want to continue that thought, but but fine-tune it a little bit and say this, that ungodliness is judged, but faithfulness is rewarded. 
Ungodliness is judged, and faithfulness is rewarded. Did you, did you notice, as um, Elena read this little letter, how many times the word ungodly is used? And in particular, in our text today, verses 11 through 16, ungodliness, ungodliness, ungodly, ungodly. There is a reality that people can be ungodly. And I, I'll put it this way. The ungodly who actively promote ungodliness are under God's judgment. Notice I said, are under God's judgment. But the faithful who actively promote faithfulness will be honored by God. Now this is where we're going. This is the stream of thought that we're going to look at this morning. And honestly... I would say 99% of this passage that we're going to look at is focusing on the first part of that equation, ungodliness is judged. And the ungodly who actively promote ungodliness are under God's judgment. But there is a, an implication from this text that flows out of the greater context that reminds us that faithfulness will be honored by God. So let's begin by looking at this sermon. And Jude begins by explaining the text. Just like a good pastor opens up, here's the text. Let me tell you what it's saying. Let me show you what the Word of God is saying. It begins by saying, woe to them. Now the word or expression woe is a word that is used typically in the Old Testament by the prophets um, to, to describe or to announce the pain and the distress people will experience as a result of God's judgment on them. God's judgment is not some kind of a slapstick funny thing. It's a very serious matter, and it's a very painful matter. I don't know if you think that weeping and gnashing of teeth is a fun time. It's not. Not because I've experienced it, because I believe what God's Word says. So, woe to them means that judgment is coming on them, and it's a painful judgment. First of all, we want to look at Cain. And Cain, it says here, what well says in verse 11, Woe to them, for they walked the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So we have three examples. Cain is the first example, and he is an example of leaders who reject God's word and do what they want to do. Well, let's just think about Cain. He departed from God's truth. He rejected God's wisdom and instruction. So turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're probably going to be doing a, a little bit of flipping this morning in some passages, so have your Bibles ready for that. Philipp, uh, Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, 
Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So this text is telling us about two sacrifices. One sacrifice is accepted, that's Abel's sacrifice. One sacrifice is rejected, that's Cain's sacrifice. But why? Why is Cain's sacrifice rejected? Well, here is what we can say. Both knew that they needed to bring an offering to the Lord. That's why they're coming. That's why they're bringing an offering. All right, so we have to think, I guess, in a logical sense. In order for them to know that they need to bring an offering, there had to have been some communication about that offering. So it stands to reason that God had communicated to them both what kind of offering they were to bring, all right, God had instructed them, God had taught them what was acceptable and what was not, and now it was the time for the offering, but Cain refuses to accept what God told him to bring and brings what he wants to bring. He rejects God's instructions. He rejects God's will. He rejects God's word and chooses to replace it with what he thinks should be an appropriate offering. But he was wrong, and God rejected his offering. Now get this, Cain was religious, but disobedient. And all across this world, there are people who are religious, but they're coming to God in systems that God rejects. And they get angry at God. In fact, they get angry at anyone else that would say that their coming to God this way is not appropriate. How dare you even suggest that what I'm doing offends God? But that's the reality of it. And when God rejected his offering, Cain responds in anger directed at his brother because he was accepted, and he kills him. Now, this kind of person thinks in their head, I know what God says in his word, but God won't judge me for bringing an offering, even if it's a little different than what he required. So they're coming to their own conclusions based on their own thinking, not based on what God says. This is how the Jews understood it. In the Targum, this is what it says. This is what they say is going on in the mind of Cain. There's no judgment, there's no judge. There's no future life. There's no reward that will be given to the righteous and no judgment will be imposed on the wicked. Now that's not what Scripture says, but that's what the Jews who believed the Old Testament wrote as they were giving a commentary about the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews, however, gives us this testimony to Abel. Hebrews 11.4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, uh, though he died, he still speaks. And so the spiritual leaders who, who walk the way of Cain are leaders who, and I just have three things that just kind of summarize it. Number one, really don't care what God's word says. Secondly, they're, they're willing to promote their false teaching even though they know that it contradicts God's word. So they really don't care what God's word says. And they're willing to promote their teaching even though they know it contradicts what God's word says. 
And the third thing is this. If you oppose them, they get angry with you. You know, isn't it interesting? It's, it's always the person who is confronting with the truth that tends to be the object of abuse, right? You know, God, God says that that is not what he desires of us. Well, who are you to say, that, you know, well, God says it in his word. Well, that's just your interpretation. You know. So you end up being the object of ridicule. And friends, this is a hard one for us. Why? Because we have a tendency not to want to have to deal with that kind of stuff. And this is hard for the church. It seems unloving. Cain, he brought an offering, didn't he? But it was a wrong offering. It was a disobedient offering. And he wasn't willing to listen to God's word. In fact, by by his actions, he rejected God's word, and he even rejected God when he was speaking to Cain about his offering. That's Cain. So these leaders were walking the way of Cain. They, they had the same attitude about God's word as Cain did. Secondly, there are leaders who are motivated by the flesh. And we have the example here of Balaam. Notice what it says and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam represents those leaders who are motivated by the flesh, in particular, the lure of money. Now turn your Bibles to Numbers 22. Numbers 22. In Numbers 22, we're told that Balaam was tempted by the offer of money by Balak the Moabite king, to prophesy a curse against God's people. God's prophet was being asked to curse God's people by an opposing, ungodly king. That make sense? And how does Balaam respond? Well, even though he knew that as a prophet he could only speak what God commanded and what God revealed, even though he knew he didn't function independently from God, that he could only say what God was saying, he was still tempted. In the temptation, he said, no, I can't do it. Good job, Balaam. But let me talk to God about it. (laughs) Well, wait a second. If you can't do it, then you can't do it. In other words, no, I can't prophesy a curse against God's people. I can only say what he says, but let's sleep on it and I will see what God says. Well, either he can prophesy against them or he can't. There's no middle ground. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 say this, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but he was rebuked. For his own transgression, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. God even intervenes. And he ends up not going that at that point in time. And so initially, Balaam appears to hold his ground as a faithful prophet. But eventually, he devises a plan whereby he would lure Israel into idolatry and immorality and ultimately into God's judgment. He eventually exposes a false teacher, 
And that we can find there in Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2. And Numbers 31, verse 6 says this, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the indecence um, of incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Now Jesus describes this kind of a leader as a hireling or a hired hand. So John chapter 10, who because of money, because that's the only thing he's interested in, he is that, you might want to say that, that caretaker of the sheep, but he's hired to do it. And so when the danger comes, he runs away. Why? Because he doesn't care about the sheep. He only cares for himself. And Jesus describes this person as a thief and a stranger in the flock. And so Jude is saying that these false teachers are not only rejecting God's word, but they're also motivated by greed or gain. And we could say also that they're motivated by all that fleshly satisfaction that comes as a result of money, power, influence, immorality, possessions, pleasure, amusement. So when these false teachers... I should say what these false teachers do is to set aside God's word and preach for the purpose of gain rather than faithfully and obediently proclaim God's word no matter what. Now, would you like to be under that kind of leadership? I would think no if you knew that's what it was. Now, friends, it is the norm, I think, in seminary context across the country for a pastor who is training for the ministry to have this seed of idea put into him. You know, you'll start out in youth ministry, and then after youth ministry, you'll, you'll pastor a small church, but eventually in your life, you'll end up pastoring a large church, as if the real goal in ministry for a pastor is to be the leader of a large, active, well-known, and vibrant church. It is the epidemic of the supersized era. And I'm, I'm personally encouraged by people like Jonathan Edwards, who was probably the most brilliant mind that America has had. I mean, you, you, you read books in, of history and stuff, they identify Jonathan Edwards as being one of the most brilliant minds that America has produced. And yet, Jonathan Edwards pastored a meager congregation in Northampton, Massachusetts, who eventually kicked him out. And when he was kicked out of there, he went to Stockport, Massachusetts, or Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he spent most of his time as a missionary to 150 uh, Mohawk and Mohegan Indians. Then there's Charles Simeon, who you've probably heard me talk about before, who for, for 12 years, he was assigned a particular pastorate, and he went to that church, and the people did not want him. And the people did not like what he was saying. And so they rebelled by not sitting in their pews. You have to understand, back then, families would buy a whole section of pew for their family, and there would actually be a lock on the, the little door that would go into the pew. They were committed to the church, but they would lock the pew and stand in the aisles while he preached in opposition to him being their pastor. And yet for 12 years he did that. Until there was a breakthrough. Now friends, this is, this is one of the, 
the sad phenomenons that we are experiencing today in our American Christian culture, and that is that bigger is better, and bigger is spiritual, and bigger is success. Now, I'm not just saying that because we are a smaller congregation. I'm not trying to justify my position here. God calls people, both pastors and people, to be a part of churches for His glory, regardless of the size of the church. The size of the church is irrelevant. If that's where God has called you, if that's where God has called me, my biggest responsibility is to recognize that I have an audience of one, and it's Him. And just think about this. If I'm going to open up God's Word in a church of 3,000 or in a church here where we may have 100 people, I'm pretty much preaching the same message. There might be some nuances because you might have some different needs or people in the congregation, but God's truth is God's truth no matter what. And so our responsibility is to recognize that we can find joy and not feel like, oh, we, we need to compare ourselves with other ministries that may be larger. But these particular men had as their motive greed, they wanted position. They wanted power. And then there's the third group. Leaders who hate authority. And here we have the example of Korah. It says, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Korah was a rebellious leader during the Israel's wilderness wanderings who led an uprising against Moses. And the basis of his rebellion was a disdain for Moses' authority over the people, <laughs> which, by the way, was an authority that God had granted him, but Korah didn't like that authority. Turn, if you would, please, to Numbers 16. And we'll just we'll read what happens kind of initially. Numbers 16, verse 1. I'm going to skip a lot of these names here in verse 1 and, and kind of jump into verse 2. But verse 1, now Korah and all these guys... He took men, okay? And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation. What does that tell you? They were leaders of families, right? So Korah had convinced 250 chiefs to follow him in this rebellion. Chosen from the assembly, well-known men, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far for all uh, in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. He's saying, we're all holy. Who do you think you are to be a leader? self-made leader. Now let's think about Korah's argument just for a quick minute. If you want to turn there, you can turn back to Exodus chapter 19 and you'll find out Korah is actually basing his argument on Scripture. Exodus chapter 19, verse 6. Here's God speaking. He makes a statement on Mount Sinai and here's what he says. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's speaking about the priesthood of all the followers of Israel. 
And so what, what Korah does is he takes that verse where God is saying, listen, everyone who's part of Israel who is a believer is a priest and part of this holy nation. He's, he's bringing unity to that group. Just like we would talk about everyone who is a child of God uh, is, is a priest before God, the priesthood of believer. We all can come boldly to the throne of grace. That is a blessing. But Korah's argument basically is this. He twists that verse to say that since we are all holy, who are you then to be our leader? If we're all holy, then we should all be holy together. We don't need any leaders. Well, that's ignoring other things, isn't it? Does Scripture talk about in the church that there are to be leaders? Yes. Does it say that those leaders are more holy? Careful with your answer. No. They are to be of good reputation. They are to recognize their sinful struggles. They're to be above reproach. Okay? So like the angels of verse 6, Korah and his followers do not want to live under the authority of others. By the way, a God-given authority. This is an attitude of a teenager who doesn't want to listen to his parents or any authority that God has placed over him for his good. This is the attitude of a wife who doesn't treasure God's word that seeks to get her out or that seeks to get out from under her God-given responsibility to submit to her husband's responsibility before God. This is the attitude of a father who doesn't want to allow God to guide and direct him in his husbanding or parenting. This is the attitude of a church leadership who simply want to lead, but are not willing to lead in a manner that seeks to follow God's instructions and will. Let me ask you a question. Was Korah a leader? Was he a leader of people? Was he, you might want to say, an effective leader of people? Yes, but he was an ungodly leader of people. Okay. Leadership does not simply mean that you have the ability to lead. And in the church, leadership means that that leadership needs to lead in a way that recognizes that God has something to say and you better listen to what he has to say and do what he has to say. So what was the judgment of Korah? and his rebellious followers. Look at chapter 16 of Numbers. Jude tells us that they perished. And that is shorthand for what we're going to find in Numbers 16, verses 31 through 43. Well, 31 through, I should say, 35. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them, talking about Korah and all his followers, split apart. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and their goods. And they all, sorry, and they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, which is the grave. And the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering incense. No small day of judgment in the history of God's people. Do you think that had an impact on the rest of the multitude who hadn't followed Korah? You better believe it. So almost every commentary I read 
said that for Israel, Korah became the classic example of a rebellious and antinomian heretic or false teacher. Now, it's worth remembering that Jude here is not ultimately writing to the false teachers, is he? He's writing to the people who are being influenced by those false teachers. He's pointing out what false teachers were doing and what false teachers were really like. They walked the way of Cain. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. Just think about that language. They abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. They perished in Korah's rebellion. And the word perish, by the way, is in the aorist tense, which means their perishing has already taken place. It's not that God's judgment will fall on these people. It's not that God's judgment is waiting to come, no. And he's talking about these false teachers in the churches. Their judgment has already come. So Jude is driving home the certainty of the false teachers and what is going to happen. Let me just kind of read a summary of what he's saying then. Dear brothers and sisters, these men who have crept into the church unnoticed and are perverting the gospel, teaching you that you can have Jesus and your sensuality too, and that there is no place for any authority in the church, are just like Cain, Balaam, and Korah. They were designated for judgment long ago, They have already perished. Now, friends, is that a harsh message? But is it a true message? See, we're we're often afraid to talk about judgment. (laughs) We're often afraid to put people in categories where it's like ungodly. But that's what Jude is doing, and that's what God is doing through Jude. Here he is, explaining the character and nature and the purposes of these false teachers. Now we move from that explanation to ungodliness applied. Having exposed ungodliness through the three Old Testament examples, Jude now presses home the implications. If you're an ungodly pastor or leader who abandons the faith, who promotes sensuality, who seeks your own gain, who works to undo the nature of true authority, what will you be like? What are you like? And Jude gives his readers five pictures to illustrate these ungodly church leaders. Number one, they're hidden reefs. Notice what it says, verse 12. They are, these are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherd, shepherds feeding themselves. A hidden reef, friends, rips apart the hull of a boat can't see it. That's the problem. You can be out in a day fishing with your family, enjoying the wonderful waters, but you don't see this reef, and the reef is sharp, and it gouges this this huge gash in the bottom of the boat and causes it to sink. That's the picture here. These false teachers, with their false teaching, come in. They're only concerned about themselves, ultimately, but they come in, and what they do is hidden, and it's going to damage and severely harm the body of Christ. They're hidden reefs. They're waterless clouds. Waterless clouds swept along by the winds. Now, here's the picture of a parched land. 
that is longing to be satisfied by the rain. And after months of, of heat and drought, roaring clouds are seen on the horizon promising to bring satisfaction to the land. And people begin to rejoice and get excited. And the clouds come and the clouds just blow right through without a drop of water. There are clouds full of empty promises. Proverbs 25, 14 says, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. And there's a sense in which these false teachers are boasting about gifts that they cannot give. They have empty promises. They come with degrees. They come with experience. They come with gifts and skills. They come with the latest strategies, the latest books, the latest ideas, but they offer no substance no one is fed, no one is watered, no one is comforted. They're fruitless trees. Fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Trees that don't bear fruit. They're supposed to bear fruit in autumn, but they don't. Why? Because they're dead. And these dead and useless trees must be uprooted. And these trees are like the false teachers. They come into a church and make a big promise, but they never bear any actual fruit. And Jude says that they're twice dead, which is very likely referring to the fact that you have a dead tree, and now that tree needs to be uprooted, which is also kind of a picture of being uprooted for the purpose of what? What do you do with a dead tree? All right, you don't use it today because it's a spare of the air day from what I understand, but you put it on the fire and you burn it. All right, fruitless trees, they're wild waves. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. It's an interesting image. Jude is likely resting on Isaiah 57.20 that says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. All this activity, but all that's left is just this foam and nastiness. So with all the noise and activity, these false teachers, they, they really never produce anything solid, edifying, helpful, or nourishing. All they produce is their own shame. David Helm captures a maybe a little different nuance here of this. He says, wild waves whose shame is relishing the exposure and public display of what is better left hidden under modest dress. Now just think about a lady going into the water and the waves with a dress on and what the waves will do to that dress. And These waters are just actively at work exposing shameful things that should not be exposed. Interesting perspective. Wild waves exposing their own shame. Wandering stars. Now we like wandering stars. Lay out at night in the middle of the summer and look up into the sky. Oh, pew, there goes a shooting star. But remember, back in the day when people used to travel, one of the things they would use to travel was what? The stars. And you usually locked on to a few stars that were key stars, right? 
but to find guidance and help and direction with a wandering star is really a vain pursuit. But there's a star. Where to go? I don't know. And so they're like wandering stars that say, hey, come follow me. And then you're like, well, where are we supposed to go? They promise direction. They promise answers. They promise some kind of a, a vision and purpose. But before long, they're just, it's gone. They can't give any, in, in, any direction. They can't give any spiritual guidance at all. So, so in summary, from all of these images here, they are a hidden danger to the church. They're full of empty promises. They're causing the, the, the dirt of shame to be exposed. And they're faulty guides that have no real ultimate direction. Their end is to be uprooted and sentenced to utter darkness forever. Now, friend, I don't, I don't have... I don't have joy in saying these things. And I don't think that Jude has joy in saying these things about people. But I believe that what, what he's revealing here is just the hard facts of what happens when people oppose God. When you reject God's word, it's going to be consequence. There just is. When you're doing something for your own selfish desires to get your own selfish way, there's going to be consequence. When you're like Korah and you are totally against any authority, there's going to be consequence. I remember being in one church where, where I was wanting to speak on a particular passage of Scripture and it mentioned authority and one of the People there that was on staff said, oh, I just don't think you should speak on, on authority. That's not going to go over well. Well, it's there in the Scripture, and guess what? I'm going to speak on it. Why? Because we need to understand God-given authorities. Now, friends, ungodliness has been exposed. It's, it's applied here by virtue of these images to help us understand the effect of that ungodliness on the church. And now it's going to be illustrated. It's what any good pastor tries to do, right? After he exposes and, and applies, he gives a story, he gives a picture, he goes to an illustration. And here, this is what Jude does. Verse 14, it was also about these, right, these false teachers, and you could say even the people before that that are used as an example, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, let me just say one thing to begin here. We have no record of this prophecy in Scripture except for what Jude says here. Okay? Now, that shouldn't shake us. Um, it is, however, um, Jude pulling from contemporary literature of his own day. Just like we, we saw he pulled from the assumption of Moses here, Jude is quoting from the apocryphal book of Enoch, which is not Scripture, it's not inspired, but it contains a prophecy that supports and illustrates his argument. It is as if Jude is saying, the word of God isn't the only literature that teaches what I'm saying. You have it in other books in your library. Now, it's not diminishing the word of God here at all. He's just reinforcing what he is saying from the word of God with contemporary literature of those people's day. All right? On a practical level, it would be like me preaching that the Christian life 
is all about struggles which we can see in the life of Joseph and Joshua and even in Nehemiah. And, and, and you can even see it in the life adventures of Pilgrim as he journeys to the celestial city in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I'm not saying that Pilgrim's Progress is the Word of God, right? But Pilgrim's Progress has a lot of good nuggets of truth that help us understand the Word of God. So Jude here is pulling from this to reinforce his argument here about what happens to these people. So now let's look at the prophecy. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones. All right, the Lord is coming, right, to execute what? Judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in, each, in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So God brings judgment on the ungodly, and I want you to notice a couple of things now about them, right? There are ungodly people, right? This prophecy says there are ungodly people, the ungodly. Do you agree there are ungodly people in this world? All right, Scripture, I think, says that plenty of times, but we must embrace that in, in, in particular these ungodly, we can go down to the last part, there are ungodly sinners, right? That's who they are. Then there's ungodly activities. And there's two kinds of activities that this little prophecy tells us of. There are deeds of ungodliness, and there are words of ungodliness. Right? And if you think about the false teachers that, that are being talked about here, there's this deeds of ungodliness, which would be the sensuality that they're promoting, and there are words of ungodliness, which would be the rebellion that they're promoting. And then they not only are ungodly people who do ungodly activities, but they're ungodly people who do ungodly activities in an ungodly manner. Let's try and connect those dots, right? Look again, verse 15. To execute judgment on all and to get, convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. So we have this ungodly manner, all this ungodliness here in this prophecy. It's as if Jude is saying, if you think that ungodly words and deeds promoted by ungodly teachers who use ungodly methods will avoid God's judgment, you are mistaken. Ungodliness will be judged. Now the world laughs at the idea of God's judgment to the point that they hate it. I mean, they, they laugh at it to the point that they hate it, and they hate anyone who even hints at it. How dare you say, because I am not a believer, that I am going to hell? Now, I want to caution us here that we must be careful with our tone in communicating that reality. That is not a joyful statement. That is a humbling, sad statement. And it's one that should be shared with compassion and concern. It's not the kind of thing that goes over well on Facebook, okay? Because you can't communicate tone in a few little words. But people do, and so you, everyone's polarized. But this is the truth, but that truth needs to be communicated, but it needs to be communicated clearly. 
but in a tone that would bring glory to God. Or they might say, how dare you be so arrogant to think that what you believe is right? And, and you don't believe what you believe is right? Well, I really don't have any beliefs. Well, then your belief is that you don't have any beliefs, and you believe that belief is right. That's the kind of kickback that more recently Kirk Cameron received while he was being interviewed on cable TV. How dare you say that? How dare you? How dare you? How dare you? But remember, Jude is not writing to unbelievers, but to believers. They are believers who are being influenced by false teachers who are unbelievers. His words of caution are primarily directed at genuine believers who need to be snatched out of the fire of false teaching. And they need to know that these men are leading them astray with empty promises and fruitless endeavors that will only cause damage to the body of Christ. So, so be careful that you don't follow these empty boasters. Now we move from this, this illustration. It just reveals to us ungodly people exist, they have ungodly behavior, and they have ungodly methods, and they are going to be judged by God. Now this ungodliness is compared. There's a subtle comparison going on in this, in this little letter. We're going to first look at the ungodly. Verse 16. Right? These, are the, these are the grumblers, the malcontent, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So the grumblers, first of all, literally, they're dissatisfied with their lot. Their complaint isn't against men, but with God himself. It's the same grumbling that's found with the Israelites who grumbled against God for bringing them out of Egypt into the desert. These men don't like to be under authority. They don't like to be restrained by grace. Restrained by grace? Yeah. For the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Titus 2, 11. They're malcontents, which literally means fault finders who complain. So it's a very similar kind of a expression as the grumblers. They complain about God's will, his plan, his ways. They don't like his grace. They don't like his authority. Instead, they follow their own sinful desires, their sensuality, their, se their selfishness, their autonomy, their greed. And I'm just pulling from these different things that are talked about that represent these men. They're boasters. Great swelling words is what the King James Version says. They pompously use large and impressive religious and theological words in an attempt to impress and fool their listeners. Have you ever heard anyone talk like that before? It's just like, well, did you really need to use that word? I mean, it's like, well, I'm impressing you with all these huge, big, long words that just, you don't, ha you know, speak normal, but there's this impressive desire that they have to boast about who they are. And then there's, the, then there's the greedy. Their favoritism and their flattery is motivated by their greed. So that's pushing them. Now, there's a sense in which Jude has said enough about the ungodly. I mean, he's laid it out, right? I mean, this is two sermons now. They're just saying, this is the ungodly. This is what they look like. This is how you can spot them. This is what they will do. 
So he wants them to know that, that, uh, that these men are ungodly in their being. They're seeking to satisfy their own sinful desires, that they are ungodly in their activity, that they are ungodly in their motives and manner. Okay? And so they are walking the way of Cain. They follow the way of Balaam. They follow the way of Korah. But friends, there is a different way. It's not just an ungodly way. There is a, there's a godly way that is, in a sense, nuanced in this passage, in this greater context. And so we, 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 we've had this flood of warning and counsel and guidance about who these ungodly men are. But where is the comparison? Well, we'll look in the context here for two examples. And the first example is the obvious example, and that is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is Jude's master and older brother. Right? He is the one for whom God's elect are kept, verse 1. He is the one who is being denied and maligned, verse 4. He is the one who judges Israel, verse 5. He is the one who established apostles to lead the church, verse 17. He is the one who grants mercy that leads to eternal life, verse 21. He is the one to whom glory, majesty, dominion, and authority are to be given, verse 25. Jesus is throughout this little letter screaming at us, as an example of what godliness looks like. He's our greatest example. He is our first example. We are to seek to be like him. We are to listen to him. We're to submit and obey him. We are to praise him. And friends, that is a lifelong pursuit, but I don't want to miss this, this picture and this example of Jesus Christ that is, that is right in the middle of all that Jude is saying. But the next example comes from our text. It's, it's subtle, but any reader familiar with the Old Testament, and that is the assumed audience that Jude has here, just by virtue of all the examples that he's given, right? They would automatically see the connection. And the other example is a man by the name of Enoch. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. There's actually two Enochs that are mentioned, one in Genesis 4 and one in Genesis 5. The one in Genesis 4 is not um, who Jude is referring to. He's referring to the Enoch in chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. There's not much said about Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365. Now, here's, the, here's what we know about Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, friends, there's, there's a lot packed into that statement. In fact, this statement is, is pregnant with implications for us to consider who this man Enoch is. And I think as, as Jude is, 
is, is preaching away, as he's writing away, if people are reading this letter, not only do they recognize, oh, here's the prophecy of Enoch that is from our contemporary you know, re- reading and, and resources, but it's a reminder of Enoch, the man, his character. And there isn't much to go by except for what we have here. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, this is a very simple way of saying, listen, there is ungodliness and there is godliness. False teachers are not walking with God. Enoch is walking with God. Enoch is an example of what we should be pursuing. Our goal, ultimately, is to be like Christ. But Enoch is an example of a human being who was pursuing God in a way that we can pursue God, and he is an example to to help us and to move us in that right direction. He walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And when God takes someone, as we have recorded in Scripture, it's, it's not because he's taken them away for judgment. He's taken Enoch away here by means of honoring him. Now friends, what kind of man was Enoch? I think he was a godly man. I think he was a godly man who had godly activities, godly words, godly deeds. He was a godly man who had a godly manner. Now certainly he was not perfect. He wasn't like Christ. But he was one that we can say would emulate the kind of life that we would want to emulate, that we would want to live for God in such a way. So I think there's a subtle connection here, an example and comparison for us. Now let's summarize all of this. Summarize the comparison. We are to pursue being like Christ, right? In the context of false teachers, Don't allow them to trip you up. Don't allow them to draw you away from the beauty of God's grace. Don't allow them to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. No. Don't allow them to to cause you to have a, a rethink about the character of Christ and who He is. No. We need to pursue being like Christ, whom we are being kept for, and to whom we will eventually go. Secondly, we're to learn to walk with God. Friends, are you doing that? Are you walking with God? Are you taking day-by-day steps, journeying with Him in your life? He's, He's very much a part of what you're doing. Or is it segregated? And the third thing there would be to avoid the ungodly. Avoid them. Pursue being like Christ. Learn to walk with God. Avoid the ungodly. Now I have just some concluding thoughts here. Two main things I just think are, flow out of this text that must be said. Number one, God's judgment is real. God's judgment is a reality. So you might want to put it this way. Hell is a reality. The lake of fire is a reality. There is coming a day 
when the Lord will come with his holy angels to exercise judgment on the ungodly. This is a real judgment that the ungodly will not be able to get away from. Every believer will be brought to stand before God and will be found, sorry, every unbeliever will be brought to stand before God and will be found guilty. They will bow the knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus is indeed Lord, something they would never have done before. And they refuse to do before, but they will at this point in time, when he's seated on the throne as judge, they will bow the knee. Scripture says, for every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And their names will not be found in the book of life. So they will be cast into the lake of fire along with death and Hades. And you can re read Re Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, if you want to you know, just confirm what I'm saying here, and I just commend you to do that. God's judgment is real. It's not just some kind of a fa fancy story. It's not a fairy tale. It is the reality. And it's not just something that's left for the end of the Bible. It's throughout God's word weaving its theme that the ungodly will suffer judgment. Secondly, God's judgment is avoided. God's judgment is avoidable, I should say. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now friends, with the reality and the honesty and the, the balance of full truth, we recognize that there is a judgment and that judgment is real. There is also a mechanism that God has put in place so that that judgment is avoidable and it is coming to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's recognizing that he is at work drawing people to himself and that new life can only come through him. And when we embrace that fact that Jesus is God, that he is Lord, that he satisfied everything necessary to accomplish what was required by the Father on that cross, we enter into this new walk, this new life with him. See, friends, there's, there's really only two ways to live. The way of ungodliness is the way of faithfulness. Ungodliness leads to judgment. Faithfulness leads to honor. I want to finish today by reading Psalm 1. And what you'll find that's amazing here is how similar the language of Psalm 1 is to the very passage that we have just talked about here. And the, the same realities are being expressed here at the beginning of this psalm. Psalm 1. Listen or follow along. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, 
but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord, would you help us today to be mindful of the reality of judgment. And yet at the same time, Lord, to be reminded of the reality of grace, of the gospel, of your rescuing hand, of the new life that you bring And Lord, the reality is that we who call ourselves your children were at one time in the category of ungodly. But only by your grace have we been brought into your family. And only by your grace do we avoid, Lord, the implications and the consequences of what do you say, the eternal consequences of our sin. And Lord, may this, this reality of judgment be very grave to us. May we not be flippant about it. May we be broken about people, who, Lord, who just who do not desire to live for your glory, who reject your word, who just desire to get and satisfy their own sinful lusts. And who are, Lord, just rebellious at any kind of authority, Lord, would you give us compassion for them, Lord, because their end is destruction, it's ruin, it's the flames of the lake of fire. Lord, help us to be compassionate people. And Lord, help us to then rejoice over the wonder of the fact that we are no longer part of that company. That you know the way of the righteous. That you know us. That we are safe. We're kept for your Son. We're kept by you. And Lord, may we live our lives in such a way that would reflect that. For your glory, we ask. In precious holy name. Amen.